Welcome to Insight. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, the Commonwealth. Does it have a future and how might New Zealand benefit? The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and the Foreign Minister Winston Peters have just returned from a diplomatic mission to the United Kingdom, where they joined Commonwealth leaders at their biennial Heads of Government meeting. It's the first summit since Britain's voted to leave the European Union, and Mr Peters emerged talking up the prospect of a Commonwealth-wide trade bloc. Our political reporter Craig McCulloch investigates whether such a deal could ever happen. Britain can certainly put on a show when it wants to. Rows of soldiers in red and black, the bearskin caps bobbing in unison as they march the streets. The grandeur of Buckingham Palace thrown open to leaders from around the Commonwealth the royal family on display. The pomp and spectacle of it all references earlier times when the Union Jack flew across an empire before the sun set on the British Commonwealth. Today the sun is beating down and inside the grand venues the talks fall of the future. Towards our common future. Our common future. A common future. Towards a common future. But what is that future, and what is New Zealand's role in it? It's a tumultuous time in world affairs. Russia's relations with the West are becoming increasingly strained, while at the same time the United States, under President Donald Trump, is turning inwards. And as Britain wrestles to extricate itself from the European Union, it's in desperate search of new friends and trading partners. Against that backdrop, then, might the Commonwealth find new meaning and re-establish itself on the world stage? The modern institution was born in 1949, a handful of former British colonies scattered across the globe. Three years later, Queen Elizabeth assumed the throne and leadership of the Commonwealth. Soon we're going to see Her Majesty, soon the bugles will ring out. And we can just glimpse Her Majesty coming round the corner now of the deck and she's just approaching the top of the gangway and listen to that welcoming cheer. The young queen swept into New Zealand in 1953, the first visit by a reigning monarch. New Zealanders filled the streets, waving flags, belting out British ballads. And now she's on the dais at the bottom. She's stepping on the last steps. One, two, three, four. She's in New Zealand, our queen. Auckland, which I reached only two days ago, is, I suppose, as far as any city in the world from London. And I have travelled some thousands of miles through many changing scenes and climates on my voyage here. Despite all that, however, I find myself today completely and most happily at home. And it was here in New Zealand, in her Christmas Day message, where she imbued the Commonwealth with a fresh mission. There's no resemblance to the empires of the past. It is an entirely new conception, built on the highest qualities of the spirit of man. Friendship, loyalty, and the desire for freedom and peace. That year, 1953, the Commonwealth Prime Ministers met in London. Nine of them from the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, South Africa, India, Pakistan, 
and the states which would become Sri Lanka and Zimbabwe. 65 years on, the Commonwealth leaders again gather, again in London, but they now number 53. The Prime Minister of New Zealand. The Commonwealth now encompasses Africa, Asia, the Caribbean and Americas, Europe and the Pacific. Home to 2.4 billion people, nearly a third of the world's population, it boasts an estimated combined GDP of more than 10 trillion US dollars. This dramatic transformation has been done peacefully and enthusiastically, largely due to the stewardship, guidance and leadership of Queen Elizabeth II. The president of Ghana, Nana Akufu Addo, acknowledging the huge strides fought and, through nearly all of it, one constant, the Queen. Her Majesty has been the influence that has steered the Commonwealth to pay greater attention to our shared values and better governance. She has been the rock that has kept this organisation sturdy and true to its positive beliefs. Having on so many occasions been welcomed to opening ceremonies around the Commonwealth, it is a pleasure this time to welcome you to my own home. At the Commonwealth's helm, Queen Elizabeth formally opening the event. She describes the body as one of the world's great convening powers. And we seem to be growing stronger year by year. The advantages are plain to see. An increasing emphasis on trade between our countries is helping us all to discover exciting new ways of doing business. At 92, and after so many years promoting the collective organisation, the Queen is beginning to wind down her responsibilities. The position doesn't automatically follow the Crown, but the countries this year decided Prince Charles would take over as head after his mother. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I pray that this Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting will not only revitalise the bonds between our countries, but will also give the Commonwealth a renewed relevance to, its, to all its citizens, finding practical solutions to their problems and giving life to their aspirations. By doing so, the Commonwealth can be a cornerstone for the lives of future generations, just as it has been for so many of us. That question of relevance has been around nearly as long as the Commonwealth itself. At times it's been written off as a talking shop, a relic, a ramshackle symbol of former imperial glory. Even at the beginning its purpose was shrouded in ambiguity. An encyclopaedia published in 1966 names the only tangible outcome of the Commonwealth as preferential trade. And even that was soon to go. It is inevitable that New Zealand should be most concerned about the immediate economic threat which would be posed were Britain to enter the EEC on terms which did not safeguard our vital trading interests. The then Prime Minister, Keith Holyoke, reading the tea leaves in the 1960s. This threat would be so overwhelming that our efforts have to be concentrated on devising ways to avoid it. This is our first duty as New Zealanders. And in 1972 it happened. The UK joined the European Economic Community. New Zealanders saw it as a betrayal Mutual trade plummeted. Mother Britain, many thought, was turning its back on the Commonwealth and embracing Europe. 
fast forward to 2016. We have fought. We have fought against the multinationals. We fought against the big merchant banks. We fought against big politics. We fought against lies, corruption and deceit. And today, honesty, decency and belief in nation, I think now, is going to win. Nigel Farage, one of Brexit's champions, celebrating the decision made on June 23rd when roughly 52% of British voters elected to leave the European Union. The UK's departure will allow it eventually to negotiate new trade deals around the globe, which invites the question, might Britain turn back to its old friends and former subjects? I get the impression they're still kind of clearing their throat on this one because they're not quite out, they're not out of the European Union yet, but they are casting around thinking, well, if we are out, what should we be doing? Sir Don McKinnon is a former Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand who went on to be Secretary-General of the Commonwealth from 2000 through to 2008. And he's delighted the UK's finally starting to show an interest in the collection of countries, even in a de facto way. They've always tended to treat it pretty lightly. Uh, in my time there, I could always say quite candidly to them, look, your most important relationship is the United States. Secondly, it's with Europe. Thirdly, it's with the Middle East. And fourthly comes everything else. And we were in the Commonwealth, was in the category of everything else. Champions of the Brexit movement say that's about to change. Nigel Farage, the British Foreign Minister Boris Johnson, both argued Brexit would allow the UK to make the most of a thriving Commonwealth market. The UK's already named New Zealand as one of the first cabs off the rank for a deal once it's out of the EU. It's said to represent roughly $5 billion in two-way trade, and it was a key focus for the Prime Minister as Jacinda Ardern met her British counterpart, Theresa May, on the summit sidelines. You know, given our size, given our focus on FTAs that deliver environmental and social wellbeing, I think we are really well-placed to enter into that negotiation as, a, as one of the first cabs off the rank. Trade was unsurprisingly high on the summit's agenda. At the close of their meeting, the leaders issued a series of agreements, among them support for intra-Commonwealth trade, with the goal of increasing it to two trillion US dollars by 2030. That's almost four times the level in 2016, roughly $560 billion. This is the first Commonwealth summit to make a unanimous statement on the need to fight protectionism. Theresa May says trade among Commonwealth countries is already flourishing. One figure keeps coming up, 19%, the so-called Commonwealth advantage. Proponents argue that trade costs are on average 19% lower between Commonwealth countries due to the shared values, language and regulatory systems. The 2018 Commonwealth Trade Review predicted that trade between member states will be worth $700 billion by 2020. Here in the UK, for example, the value of our exports to fellow members is roughly double what it was 20 years ago. But for all the optimism, the UK papers point to a somewhat different version, warning that the Commonwealth's little substitute for the EU. A columnist in The Guardian calls it a cynical paper-mâché version of not-quite-empire. The Financial Times says it's a fanciful illusion. The Independent reports a British MP calling the plan a fool's errand. Sir Simon Fraser used to head the UK's diplomatic service and has been a key voice calling for perspective. New Zealand represents a very small proportion of British trade. Even if we doubled that, it would still be a small proportion. That's very welcome, but it's not going to be in itself a solution to the dilemmas of Brexit. So has the rhetoric been overblown, do you think? I mean, we're a tiny dot on the other side of the globe. 
Well, you're a small country but a very close partner and therefore there's a very strong incentive. Um, I think it is possible to overblow the rhetoric. That doesn't mean that it's not a good thing. I just think we have to keep everything in perspective. More than 40% of Britain's exports went to the EU in 2016. Just 9% went to Commonwealth countries. And I don't think there's going to be a very significant shift in British attitudes or huge investment of British effort into New Zealand more than there is now. I'm Craig McCulloch and you're listening to an RNZ Insight programme exploring what's next for the Commonwealth. Of all the suggestions to arise from this year's Chogham, a Commonwealth trading bloc is the most ambitious, a deal similar to the new Trans-Pacific Partnership, but between the Commonwealth countries. The idea has been seized upon by Winston Peters, the leader of New Zealand First. Not all that long before the Brexit vote, he travelled to the UK, lobbying for exactly that, the creation of a Commonwealth free trade area. Mr Peters is now, of course, the Foreign Minister and Deputy Prime Minister. And the Labour New Zealand First Coalition Agreement includes a line that reads, a commitment to initiate closer Commonwealth economic relations. There's a whole lot of excitement about that and how we might begin to put some uh, flesh to an idea, which was was skeletal two years ago, but since the 23rd of June 2016, it's become real. And so uh, that was very exciting. And a whole lot of countries, without saying too much about it, realise that something is very exciting and new about this. What progress practically have we seen from this trip? Uh, well, the, the idea that we would actually sit down and start putting some flesh around it and try and get together the bones of an agreement long before they uh, leave um, the Euro- European Union. Mm. And there was, there's a real, um, uh, I think, uh, environment here at the moment around issues of trade, given we're seeing an int- increase in protectionism, and that tends to uh, be at the, uh, at the expense of uh, small states like ourselves, but also like many of those who are represented in the Commonwealth. One of my explicit interventions yesterday was around the potential uh, of trade amongst the Commonwealth. Uh, And it does take a while to build the platforms for these kinds of agreements, but really starting to lay the foundation and the momentum around it, I think, is at least a good starting point. The idea sparked enthusiasm from some in the UK. Here's Lord Jonathan Marland, a former Conservative Party treasurer, speaking at a Chogham business event. Why not a start establishing trade agreements? or a framework for trade agreements within the Commonwealth. It, in my view, is a complete open goal that is there for the taking, a free trade Commonwealth framework. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you to take your seats as soon as possible, please, so we can get on with the next session. At a similar business forum on the summit's edge, the discussion focuses on how to boost economic interaction across the Commonwealth. The keynote speaker, Nigeria's president, Mohamedou Bahari, To make business easier amongst countries in the Commonwealth, we must therefore ensure that markets remain open and undistorted. This is why I believe that making business easier in the Commonwealth is a shared responsibility for us all. More than 40 African nations signed a free trade pact in March, committing to cutting tariffs on 90% of goods. But in a sign of the challenge a similar Commonwealth initiative would face, Nigeria, Africa's largest economy, did not sign up. Speaking at the same forum, Nazir Razak, a Malaysian banking executive, spoke frankly. If you go to the extreme, the idea of a sort of TPP for Commonwealth isn't going to work. I think hardwiring amongst 53 countries isn't going to happen. And that's just the beginning of the scepticism. The Commonwealth countries vary wildly in both size and wealth, 
from Canada through to Papua New Guinea, never mind India, an international powerhouse and a major stumbling block. New Zealand's been in and out of trade talks for now eight years. At least two countries, Cyprus and Malta, too would be excluded due to their EU membership. Even the Royal Commonwealth Society, an NGO committed to promoting the value of the Commonwealth, says such a deal would be a massive undertaking. Here's Linda Yu, one of the Society's trustees. To do a free trade agreement is a very difficult task and the big regional agreements that we currently have, and there's not many of them, the EU is the, ex- is the example where you have the most countries uh, within it. And when it was originally devised, there were less than a dozen countries that had set up, the, at the time, the European Economic Community. So that just gives you a sense of how challenging free trade agreements can be. In New Zealand, the opposition National Party is also wary. Its trade spokesperson, Todd McClay, a former trade minister, says enhancing Commonwealth bonds is a worthwhile goal, but an all-encompassing trade deal would be, to say the least, challenging. It speaks to Winston Peters' desire to recreate the old world. And look, it might be a wonderful thing, but I think in reality it's very difficult and in practice it wouldn't work because you have some of the poorest developing countries that already have preferential access to the rest of the world through the WTO. You have India, the largest Commonwealth member, who has not really done trade deals with anybody, at least not a trade deal that New Zealand would sign up to. And so the final thing is you can see from the TPP negotiation over nine years when you had 12 countries how difficult these things can be. Sir Simon Fraser's also not convinced. If you look at the Commonwealth, it's a very diverse group of countries spread across the world with very diverse uh, interests. Uh, And, you know, it probably isn't... There isn't a sufficient unity of interest for there to be something called a Commonwealth block or Commonwealth area. And Sir Don McKinnon's not sold either. They are just too vastly different. To try and arrange that between all the African nations and then, say, the Caribbean nations and then the South Asian nations, after a look at the great difficulty India had on the last, uh, on the tail end of the uh, Doha round of trade talks, it just wasn't going to work. So that would be, uh, it would be asking what could probably not be delivered that easily. But the objections and obstacles aren't deterring the government. Winston Peters has a message for the sceptics. Look, um, for decades we've seen enormous cynicism about the Commonwealth. Don't forget it started with eight countries, this meeting that we're, t- we're talking about. That's a long time ago. Now it's 53, possibly 54, if the Maldives comes back. But the fact is that things have dramatically changed. And I would say to journalists who exhibit that sort of cynicism, even this country, get over yourselves and realise the rest of the world needs the Commonwealth, it needs us, and it needs a country called New Zealand to show its kind of values that uh, could be seriously important towards the economic and security of the Pacific and, indeed, the world we live in. But the, I mean, just negotiating the TPP, for example, took a long time and was very difficult. This is more nations than that. I mean, it didn't practically... take us long, very long at all. It took us less than two months. Remember? <laughs> when we put some values around it, we did it under two months. We did it in Vietnam in lightning speed, and I've got to say, the Prime Minister, David Parker, and the Foreign Affairs Department and Trade Department did a superb job. The new Trans-Pacific Partnership was more than a decade in the works and ultimately covered just 11 countries. Here again is the Prime Minister. I don't think we should dismiss it as being unrealistic. We have had complex trade agreements before. We're currently, you know, TPP was across a diverse range of nations. RCEP equally. I don't think we should give up on that ambition. 
maybe not as diverse, though, as, say, India and Malawi and Canada. Oh, yes, but even when you look at some of the diversity of the RCEP membership, uh, and, and look, that might mean that in some cases it's not quite as ambitious as an agreement, um, but there is still, I think there's still a starting point for discussion. A more manageable arrangement may be a proposed alliance known as CANZUK. That's Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the United Kingdom. Its proponents support a multilateral trade agreement alongside a free movement zone and a security partnership. Mr Peters has previously floated a similar arrangement based on New Zealand's agreement with Australia, which could begin with those four countries and perhaps even Singapore and South Africa. Boris Johnson has also, when he was London Mayor, backed travel and work zones between the four countries. Andrew Lillico is a New Zealand-born, London-based economist and a major advocate for Kanzuk. Those countries are more similar to the UK than anywhere else in the world. They're also countries with, uh, that have very high levels of mutual regard, similar constitutions, similar cultures. The mesh, I think, is natural and obvious as to why it would be likely to work. Uh, and I, I think that uh, in the modern world, I think that the ability for people who have a similar way of looking at things to join together, to have mates, is not only a matter of how they deal with each other, but also in global agreements, forming some kind of reasonably united front. And in fact, Kanzuk, as a name, is a name which was devised at the UN by diplomats as a shorthand for these countries because they so often voted together. So I think that the natural affinities of those countries are quite clear. In the future, he suggests other Commonwealth countries could jump on board. The Bahamas, St Kitts, Bermuda... But crucially, he cautions against thinking of Kanzuk as a springboard to a wider Commonwealth arrangement. The Kanzuk scheme is consciously not a Commonwealth scheme. So it's not about reheating the empire or anything of that sort. It's about finding countries with whom the, you have very high levels of similarity. And they just aren't with lots of the Commonwealth. They aren't the same. And so uh, I don't think this Kansas scheme should be thought of as some sort of most of the Commonwealth scheme. It's not really like that at all. Does it get confusing then when the Foreign Minister of New Zealand talks about closer Commonwealth economic relations? I think that at some point, if we're going to make practical deep schemes work, then politicians of all sorts need to move away from the language of the Commonwealth. So if you're going to go for breadth and you just want to have lots of people in and you want to look like you're being fluffy and friendly and talking about how you love all of the world, then sure, people like the language of the Commonwealth for that. If you're actually going to go for something practical which could work and achieve a high level of depth, a globally significant geopolitical partnership, you need to be narrower than the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth, it's Uncle Tom, Cobbley and all, isn't going to work because they won't all agree to participate. It would destabilise things. You won't get anything like the depth. With the Kansas group, you can get the depth. The Kanzuk model throws up an important point, the flow of human resource. And for all the talk of free trade at the summit, there's little mention of the free movement of people. Indeed, at the summit's final press conference, a Nigerian reporter asks a pressing question to the Commonwealth Secretary-General, Patricia Scotland. Do you have plans for free movement? We talk about free trade, we talk about free businesses and others. What about free movement in terms of a visa waiver and some other things that happens like in the EU. My question is to the Secretary General. 
Well, I thank you for that question, but one of the joys of being Secretary-General is that I'm not actually a head of state, and therefore I would very much like uh, to pass the question to one of those who have the ability to make that determination. I am their servant. <laughs> the question goes unanswered. None of the leaders on stage from the UK, Ghana, Grenada and Samoa are wanting to speak up. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. This is Osterley. This is a Piccadilly line service to Cockfosters. It's an announcement familiar to Kiwis after they touch down at London's Heathrow Airport and ride the underground line into the city, many beginning their big OE. I was one of them several years ago, undergoing that rite of passage. I was living in London for the Brexit vote, for the backlash against immigration. And I was there as the UK government made it tougher for migrants, including New Zealanders, to live and work there. It's now more expensive to get the typical two-year youth visa or five-year ancestry, and it's tougher and more costly if you want to apply to stay on for longer. The crackdown on many migrants is attracting criticism from some big voices. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to City Hall. Who's excited? Oh, come on. Who's excited? The London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, at an event for young people hosting the Young Commonwealth leaders, Canada's Justin Trudeau and New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern. He was happy to weigh in on the debate when asked by New Zealand media. What we don't want is a toxic, hostile environment being created so people in New Zealand are under the mistaken impression that we're going to somehow become insular, inward-looking. No, no, no. Our, our future is in us continuing to be a diverse city and, and it's continuing to be a welcoming place for the talent from New Zealand. Does it bother you that the government has made it harder for New Zealanders to live and work here? Oh, of course it does. My message to the government, and I've, said this, I've said this privately and publicly, is they've got to be very careful not to inadvertently give an impression uh, that we're, uh, we're, we're somehow anti-people uh, from overseas coming to uh, our city. Uh, that's the story of London. Since the changes in 2016, New Zealand has lobbied the UK for a fair deal for Kiwi travellers, and it's certain to feature in upcoming trade negotiations. Jacinda Ardern says the potential deal with the UK as well as one with the European Union, are New Zealand's top two trade priorities. Any prospect, then, of a Commonwealth-wide agreement will have to be nudged along slowly in the background. The next chogum is set for 2020 in Rwanda. We obviously meet every two years. We should be using those intervening periods to keep growing the momentum, but any trade agreement is slow. You know, there are very few that, that you'll see move quickly um, when you think about how long New Zealand even has been trying to finalise agreements with India, how long we've been trying to seek a mandate with the EU, um, how long the TPP took. They take time, and so I, I envisage that this one would too. I am can't read my mind. Perhaps it's fitting, then, that as the leaders gather at Buckingham Palace, a Commonwealth chorus performs the song. A nod to the future, but with much uncertainty. That programme was written and presented by Craig McCulloch. If you'd like to load up with some great listening, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz forward slash insight, iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, as the due date for the Prime Minister approaches, Hamish Cardwell delves into the role of men as primary caregivers in New Zealand. I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's all from Insight for today. Join us again next week. Listener.